I'm Michael McMullen. And I'm John Mark Yates. Welcome to This Week in Church History. Welcome to This Week in Church History. I'm your host, John Mark Yates. I am joined today by a good friend of mine by the name of Malcolm Yarnell. Uh, Dr. Yarnell is a professor at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he has served for quite some time. Uh, I was a colleague of his uh, back in the day at Southwestern. He taught me so much about what it means to serve the church through the academy. I'm deeply indebted to him. My usual co-host, Dr. Michael McMullen, uh, is out ill today. So as we have our conversation talking about E.Y. Mullins and religious experience, I'm so thankful that you were able to join me uh, today, Dr. Yarnell. I'm glad to join you, and uh, we'll be in prayer for Dr. McMullen. Absolutely. We uh, we miss his uh, cheerfulness uh, always when he's not around. So it's always, uh, a, a, I, I hate not having him here uh, with me for uh, all of our conversations. Now, Dr. Yarnell, you've done uh, quite a bit uh, relating to Baptist history and theology. And when we look at the 21st century, uh, 21st century we're, we are still shaped by uh, those who've gone before us. And in the, the late 19th and early 20th century, there are very few men who shaped Baptist life quite like E.Y. Mullins. What are some of what are some of the things that you, you know, when you think E.Y. Mullins, that you think just kind of everybody should know about him? Yeah, well, I'm glad you bring him up. You know, Edgar Young Mullins was uh, born in 1860. He passed away in 1928. But what's, I think, interesting about him is he is the most important Baptist theologian uh, in the early 20th century. And he really set the agenda for Baptist apologetics, Baptist theology in the 20th century. There's no one uh, in the Baptist world that matches uh, his influence. And among Southern Baptists, uh, his importance. Uh, He has actually been called uh, the father of the Southern Baptist Convention, although he was not part of the foundation of the uh, convention. uh, He was just so influential. He was the uh, president of the Southern Baptist Theological uh, Seminary, and uh, also the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Uh also president of the Baptist World Alliance. (laughs) And I mean, you know, so he was very well known all over the world. He was also very well beloved. And, you know, when I think of Mullins and his importance, I think of him in a couple of areas. I think of him with regard to not just his theology, but his apologetics. Mm. He was very mission-minded, and that mission orientation uh, shaped his theology through his understanding of what a human being is. And so uh, apologetics, theology, anthropology, these things are really what he's known for. And those are just from an ideological perspective. There are, he wrote uh, several books, which uh, at least two of them, no, I think three of them are still in print, still used. And uh, that those include uh, the Axioms of Religion, which was uh, first published in 1908, as, and, and that really sets his understanding of Baptist identity uh, and is also an apologetic for the Baptist movement. 
Uh, But there's also his systematic theology, uh, The Christian Religion in Its Doctrinal Expression, which was published in 1917 and is still in publication and still used in Baptist uh, schools around the world. And then there is this smaller work, uh, which is also still in print, and that is his Baptist beliefs. And that's more of a a summarization of his uh, theology. And that was first published in 1912. That's pretty good to have, you know, three works that had great influence in their own day, uh, but they're even still being used uh, today. And in many ways, I have to say, uh, Mullins set the agenda so strongly in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, that it is his legacy that became the battleground uh, for uh, the controversies uh, around the conservative uh, moderate uh, parties in the Southern Baptist Convention in the late 20th century. That's that's absolutely correct. And, and as you look at uh, E.Y. Mullins and his, even his early life, as he studied as a young man at Texas A&M, um, it was only after he graduated from university that he even heard and responded to the gospel uh, at, a re- at a religious revival meeting. And um, that's where we're actually targeting for this week in church history is his November 7th baptism in 1880. Uh, A year later, he's surrendering to missions. He wants to go to the mission field. He wants to go tell everyone that he possibly can about Jesus and to make a difference uh, for the cause of Christ from the mission field. And that early ambition to do great things for uh, the cause of Christ seems to just radiate throughout his life. Yeah, I agree. It does radiate throughout his life. You know, he uh, did sense a strong call into missions. Uh, He was, by the way, uh, baptized in the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, became a a huge church under the ministry of uh, George Washington Truett, another uh, famous and very important figure in early Southern Baptist life. Uh, especially in the early 20th century. But, you know, Mullins uh, married uh, Isla May Holly in 1886, and they had two sons, Edgar Wheeler and Roy uh, Granberry. But what's interesting is that both of these boys uh, died prematurely. Mm -hmm. And so here is an energetic leader, um, and he loves his family. He loved his children. And so he ends up pouring his whole life, all of that incredible energy and mind that he has into building up the Southern Baptist Convention, into building up the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, into teaching uh, what he believed to be the utter truth of uh, the Baptist movement, of the Christian movement. And that, that, that truth is so interesting, and I think his personal life really comes into it. He, when he was born again, it was a very personal, very dynamic experience expressed in believer's baptism. And so everything is based on that personal encounter between the Christian and Christ. And out of that personal encounter, out of that personal relationship and that very respectful relationship between the Christian and Christ, folded out all of his theology, his missions, his apologetics, um, his philosophy. It's it's wrapped up into that dynamic Christian personalism. And that 
Christian personalism opened Mullins up to critique in his own day. Um, it definitely uh, allowed for critique uh, much later, uh, especially in the later part of the 20th century. What does Mullins understand about this Christian personalism, and why was it uh, such a difficult concept for many? Yeah. You know, the fact is, is that he encountered Christ. He encountered Christ through the proclamation of a scripture, but his encounter was with Christ. And so he made this distinction uh, between uh, subjective authority and objective authority. And mm. the uh, subjective authority is that a personal uh, encounter with Christ that is uh, witnessed to by the objective authority, which is scriptures, and in particular, the New Testament. So he's got this subjective, objective, uh, dialectic, if you will, and the subjective is just so very important to what he's doing. Now, he did encounter controversy because he was seeking to hold together, as uh, so many others were trying to do, but uh, he was seeking to hold together uh, conservative Christians and then also uh, more academic and advanced uh, Christians uh, in their theology. And the way he was doing that was by holding together the subjective and the objective while uh, the more conservatives were trying to defend the Bible, our objective authority. There were uh, moderates. Well, in their day, they were really called liberals. Um, and modernists, and they and they were going uh, off into more of uh, personal authority, and mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, uh, beginning to uh, compromise the authority of Scripture by emphasizing personal authority. The the subjective aspect of authority, that personal encounter with Christ that Mullins had for him, was not in opposition. To the objective authority in scripture. They came together. And the, the, the problem was, is that for others, they couldn't hold them together right. in the same way that Mullins held them together. So maybe this is a good place to talk about one of the enduring concepts that, that Mullins put forward, um, which I think resonates here exactly in this space, uh, his idea of soul competency. What does that mean for Mullins? I, it, it gets that, that concept morphs and changes in the 20th century uh, from subsequent generations. But what does Mullins mean by soul competency uh, for an individual? You know, the idea of soul competency for him is the center of uh, what it means to be Baptist. And so in his uh, famous 1908 work, The Axioms of Religion, which uh, had the subtitle, A Reinterpretation of uh, the, the Baptist Distinctives, um, he takes and tries to display exactly what he thinks is the genius of the Baptist movement. And for him, that genius is located in that Christian personalism in a new concept or something that he coined this term, soul competency. And all sorts of ideas of freedom flow out of this idea of soul competency. I mean, he did believe uh, that God has sovereignty over individuals that soul competency means uh, that people have equal rights of access to God. 
And here there is a strong um, anti-Roman uh, Catholic movement. Mm. And so, uh, you know, soul competency in some ways is the answer uh, to the Roman Catholic uh, penchant and, you know, seen in a number of places for a succession and for a succession of authority. And so soul competency takes the idea that a priest can, a human priest, not Christ, of course, but a human priest can somehow uh, get into the relationship between the human being and God to, to Mullins and to other Baptists in their day with their anti- uh, Catholic uh, viewpoint. This was uh, a critical understanding that Baptists had to hold to. And for them, I mean, everything from equal privileges in the church to uh, responsible and free morality to a free church and a free state, all of this was wrapped up and came out of his understanding of soul competency. And so that, that idea of soul competency was taken over and became a very common view um, of Baptists in the, uh, in the 20th century. I mean, mm-hmm. the book itself was uh, reprinted and expanded by Herschel Hobbes, right. another important uh, Southern Baptist <laughs> figure. And so uh, it became, and it was also encapsulated in the, uh, the forward or the preamble of the uh, Baptist Faith and Message, which was adopted in 1925 right. under his chairmanship. And so you can see this idea, which really encapsulates so much of his uh, self-understanding, of his understanding of the Christian before God, of his understanding of Baptist identity, actually got put into uh, the Southern Baptist Confession, the Baptist Faith and Message of 1925. Well, with the axioms of religion, one of the things that I, I found absolutely fascinating the first time I had encountered and worked through it, I had heard concepts of soul competency uh, expressed in popular parlance uh, in the 20th century as reflecting more of uh, a staunch individualism, right? It was it was wrapped in a much, uh, a modernist wrapper, let's, let's, just, let's just call it that. Uh, that that asserted that individuals uh, pretty much had their own personal autonomy. When you read Mullins, he actually starts with the concept of God's sovereignty before he ever moves to a concept of soul competency. Um, and that tension, as you so rightly uh, pointed out earlier, seems to be what motivates him, and he seems to be able to hold that together better than most people can. He does, but I mean, uh, his critics, and especially if you come out of a more reformed understanding, his critics are very nervous with this idea, because soul competency, I think, when uh, as, as I read Mullins, my understanding is that soul competency for Mullins meant a pre-regeneration capacity in humans to deal directly with God apart from any human mediation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, myself, I would want to back off of that uh, a bit and emphasize more of uh, the necessity of grace. Mm. But he, uh, even while he's holding to divine sovereignty, he's got this anthropology, which is uh, hard as a diamond that deals with the human uh, being in their uh, deepest uh, personhood. And so that's, I think, it's hard to get around that with Mullins. And that's why he's subject uh, to criticism. I mean, 
you know, even one of his successors uh, at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. Al Mohler, uh, writes not uncritically <laughs> of <laughs> Mullins in this regard. And I have uh, been uh, not uncritical of uh, Mullins myself. And it's and it's because it it so raises anthropology and individualist anthropology to a level uh, that it's hard to uh, it's it's hard to get around um, and still hold to a strong doctrine of of grace. Well, when when we think through that and how that plays out overall, um, that changes the way that we understand church and the way that our ecclesiology should work itself out. And to this, Mullins didn't shy away, and he emphasized the voluntary principle uh, in religion uh, so so well uh, in relation to this theology. What did he really come to understand that if we have these uh, individuals who are competent through their soul competency and their direct relation to God, how does that change the way that our churches are supposed to function? Yeah, I think what he would argue for is uh, a, a radical church democracy. And so he's very interested in each person being seen as having a personal relationship to Christ. And therefore, uh, we ought to respect one another. And that respect for one another is so strong for Mullins that he would even argue that a person should, uh, uh, a parent should stay away from trying to dominate their children and allow them to grow so that they will personally accept Christ. So he's concerned about coercion of the human will, and he doesn't want that uh, to happen. And so for him, from an ecclesiological perspective, it means a radical church democracy. How much on that, uh, and, and I know you've done work um, with Anabaptist thought, and uh, many of our Anabaptist forebears were, were more, maybe we could call it egalitarian or flat in their understanding of uh, how leadership structures in the church were to be, um, to be created. Is he drawing from an Anabaptist strain here, or is this a different framework that he's putting together uh, just based out of his own theological ideas? You know, that's a great question. I do not uh, see Anabaptist influence. And as you know, I've written on Anabaptists and Baptist theology uh, quite a bit. I do not see this coming from uh, any type of respect for the Anabaptist uh, tradition. What I see him respecting, and, and as I see this, I want you to understand he himself is not uh, adopting everything that he gets from them, uh, but he is looking at the uh, personalist philosophy of uh, Borden Parker Bound uh, mm-hmm. at the University of Boston. He's also looking at the religious psychology of William James, and he makes a statement, for instance, in his uh, Christian religion in his doctrinal expression, his uh, really his magnum opus, uh, his systematic theology. He refers uh, to Friedrich uh, Schleiermacher, who we know as the father of modern liberalism. To him, uh, Schleiermacher is a church father. Now, mm-hmm. he's not going to go where uh, Schleiermacher goes in his theology, because Mullins stays orthodox in his theological conclusions, but his theological method is so individualist that it does tend towards uh, liberalism. 
And I think that that uh, that liberal, if I can use it, theological method, actually, even though he's ending with orthodox Baptist theological conclusions, it sets up within the Southern Baptist movement this uh, this tension that eventually uh, breaks uh, mm-hmm. in the conservative resurgence of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, from 1979 and on. And, uh, and and so uh, moderates uh, in the uh, late 20th century see Mullins as a hero and an exemplar for them. And Mullins was uh, adopted by everybody across the board. And conservatives begin to look at him and uh, begin to have great doubts about him, mm. in part because of the hero status that he received. But also they wondered and, and I still wonder, how can you have a, such a theological method uh, without uh, sometimes tending over into liberal theological conclusions? Let me say it again. Mullins came up with orthodox theological conclusions, but his mm-hmm. method is such that it is highly uh, anthropocentric and individualist that it actually in, allows for. It doesn't necessarily encourage, but it would allow for liberal theological conclusions. One of the surprising discoveries for me as a young um, historian uh, in early in grad school was that Mullins contributed a chapter to the fundamentals. Um, I was so shocked at this, uh, and I couldn't believe it. And then when you read the chapter in the fundamentals on religious experience, it sits oddly, e- even with the broader corpus of uh, the fundamentals themselves. How, do you know how he ended up getting connected even with uh, that project as a whole? I'm not aware of how he was connected with that project other than uh, just, you know, by that point, his name is uh, quite prominent. Mm. And so uh, it would be who uh, the uh, the editor and publishers of the uh, of, of the uh, fundamentals. Uh, to include somebody of his stature, and like I said, his his conclusions are orthodox. There's no there's no reason to doubt his theology, and so, yeah, I mean, this just brings us back to the fact that his uh, theology and his theological method can be embraced uh, by many Baptists and uh, evangelicals uh, across the board. And, and so that's just one of the legacies uh, of the, you, you can refer to it as uh, the grand nature of his project or as <laughs> of the, um, you know, the untenable nature of his project, however you want to look at it. But uh, the fact is, is that he was able to uh, relate to, to both sides, what we refer to as both sides today. But for him, it's just one a part of one grand movement. Well, for any of our listeners who are students of uh, early 20th century evangelicalism or Baptist thought, is there a volume that you would encourage uh, anyone just to pick up to start engaging Mullins more deeply? Yes, I would start with his axioms of religion and um, make a distinction here. Uh, the, the more recent uh, printing of it. Uh, is a reworking by Herschel Hobbes. Uh, I would actually, you know, I'm a purist when it comes to history. <laughs> I, I would go back uh, to the earlier uh, volume there, but the axiom of religion. Uh, and then if you want just a, a quick uh, view into his uh, into his theology, 
I'd look at his Baptist beliefs. And if you want to get deeper, then you go to his Christian religion in its doctrinal expression. Now, by the way, I mentioned these books. He wrote many others. Right. Uh, uh, those are just his uh, three most uh, popular works. There is a lot of work that can be done on Mullins. And so uh, if any of our listeners are contemplating doctoral studies or doctoral work, uh, this would be a great subject to jump into. Uh, there are a lot of contextualities that are needing to be explored here even uh, e- even more so. But for any of our listeners who are just kind of grabbing some of this, as you've heard Dr. Yarnell, this is a, a great way for you to get into this uh, by accessing the axioms of religion or his theology uh, or his Baptist beliefs volume. Uh, these works are available at our sponsor, the Sword and Trowel Bookstore, uh, which is located on the campus of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And you can grab some of those volumes here on our campus uh, or actually order them online through the Sword and Trowel Bookstore. And we would encourage you Uh, to do so. Dr. Yarnell, as always, it is great to talk with you. Thanks for spending a few minutes with us, uh, with our listeners, uh, talking about E.Y. Mullins and his impact on Baptist life. It's good to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. We'll look forward to doing it again soon. Listeners, thanks for joining us this week, and we will see you next week on This Week in Church History.